of God's Word this morning. Take it out. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. Pull that up on your phone or your iPad or whatever you've got with you this morning. Philippians chapter 4. After this morning, we only have three more Sundays in Philippians. This week, we're going to look at Philippians 4, verse 4 to 7. The following week, we'll look at verse 8 to verse 13. Week after that, we'll look at verse 14 to 20. And then the last week, we'll look at verse 21 to 23. So we're getting close to the end of Philippians. There's some notes in your outline if you'd like to follow along. We're going to just start off with a little bit of review. Some of you have heard this multiple times if you've been here over the last few weeks, the last couple of months. Some of you, this may be new for you. But I want you to understand that Paul used the word rejoice nine times in the book of Philippians. And I'm aware that when you look at your notes that I did not list out nine verses, it's because some of those verses contain the word rejoice twice. So in three of these passages, he uses it more than one time. This is where we got the title for our sermon series. We're calling it Rejoice. And I've told you this multiple times throughout the series that rejoicing in the context of Philippians and really the context of Scripture from beginning to end means worshiping with joy. Worshiping with joy. Worship is an action. It's something that you do. Joy, we've talked about being not so much an emotion, but more of an attitude, sort of a mindset that you decide that you're going to adopt. And so Paul, over and over, he's calling these people to worship with joy, worship with joy. And this week, as I got ready to to preach and I was studying, I just went back through Philippians and I read the nine verses and I thought about them. And as I read through them and I thought about them, it reminded me of a guy named George Mueller. George Mueller lived a long time ago in the 1800s, from about 1805 to the end of the 19th century. He lived a long life. Uh, He was an evangelist. He lived in England. And there's a picture over on the right of his orphanage in a group of students that lived at his orphanage. Uh, During his life in this orphanage, he took care of and helped to raise 10,000 orphans, which is quite a huge task when you think about the, the work involved in that, especially back in the 1800s. He started over 100 schools, 112 schools, and he educated well over 100,000 children who wouldn't have been educated otherwise. This is a guy who was very busy. 10,000 orphans is a lot of orphans. And he was an evangelist, and he would go throughout uh, Bristol and neighboring towns and communities, and he would preach. And he's got these schools, starting 112 different schools, educating all these children, super, super busy. And yet he says this, one of the busiest men in all of England, he says, the first great and primary business every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. I got a lot to do. I got a lot of mouths to feed. I got a lot of things to do. I got a lot of folks to network with and responsibilities that fall onto my shoulders. But the greatest responsibility that I have every day is to make sure that my soul is happy in the Lord. That ought to be like part of your life motto or your life plan or your life goal is to say, regardless of how much I have to do every single day, I need to make sure that my soul is happy in the Lord. And I think that's kind of what Paul is driving at here in this letter to the Philippians when over and over and over again he's saying rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Worship with joy. Worship with joy. And he repeats this word over and over and over again to his friends in Philippi. The big idea of our passage is pretty simple. 
few blanks for you to fill in if you like to fill the blanks in. He commanded the Philippians to rejoice. Paul commanded them to rejoice. And he assumed that their rejoicing would change the way that they lived their lives. He's commanding them to rejoice. We've seen that multiple times already. We'll see it again before we finish. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. He's saying you must do this. You must worship with joy. And his assumption, as we look at these verses, is that if you do that, it's going to change who you are and it's going to change the way that you live your life. So let's jump in and we'll read the passage and we'll pray and then we'll spend a little time talking about it. Philippians 4. Verse 4, 5, 6, and 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your grace and your mercy. We've sung about that this morning. We're grateful for your word. And as we take a few moments out of our week, just to sit and to be still and to think about what you've said to us, in Scripture and to submit our lives to the authority of your word. We pray that your spirit would be at work in us to illumine our minds, to understand, and to shape our hearts to receive your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you know this guy? Anybody know who that is? This is an old picture and a newer picture. Bobby McFerrin. Anybody remember Bobby McFerrin? You're already singing the song, aren't you? It's going to be in your head all day. You're welcome for that in advance. As you, as you sing it and you hum it, you just thank me. You know him. He's an accomplished vocalist. He's actually a 10-time Grammy winner. But you, as you're singing it and humming it, know him for the great classic tune, Don't Worry, You Finish the Rest, Be Happy. Don't Worry, Be Happy. You just you wish I would sing it right now or you wish I would play it. You're running it through your brain. Famous for this song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. It's the first a cappella song. Some of you didn't even know it was an a cappella song. All the sounds in that song McFerrin made with his own voice. First a cappella song to be number one on the Billboard charts. I read that this week, and I thought, well, I wonder if there's been another song since then, a cappella song that made it to number one. And I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that his was the first. Don't Worry, Be Happy. A lot of you know the tune. Some of you can't even remember the music video. And if you don't remember the music video, I'm not going to show it. But you should go home and watch it and look it up. Robin Williams is in it, and it's just funny. It's really funny. You should go home and watch it, listen to the song, reminisce, don't worry, be happy. Some of you don't know or you don't remember that in between all the don't worry, be happies, he talks in the song about some really depressing things. Like, he talks about being homeless. If you listen to the words he's actually singing. He talks about being lonely. He talks about all these depressing things, and then he just comes back, and it's a light, a happy, a fun song, and it just makes you smile when you say it. All these miserable things in life, and he just says, don't worry, just be happy. The tagline didn't come from McFerrin. 
It's actually much, much older than McFerrin. In the 1900s, there was an Indian Hindu mystic named Meher Baba. Meher Baba, he would teach about reincarnation and spiritual power and karma and all these Eastern ideas. And he even took a, a tour through the United States and he preached in the United States and uh, had all these followers and it was a very trendy thing. Back in the early 1900s, you didn't send texts back to the United States. You didn't send, uh, you know, emails and things like that. You sent cables back or telegraphs back. And he would send these messages back to his followers as he's traveling the world. And at the end of almost all of his cables back to the United States, he would say this, don't worry, be happy. And McFerrin takes the line, and he throws it on a song, and he's got a neat voice and a catchy, catchy uh, tune with it, and he makes millions and millions of dollars. Now, why do you say, why are we bringing up Bobby McFerrin and Meher Baba when we're looking at the book of Philippians? And the reason is, at this point in Philippians, you've heard Paul repeating this chorus line or this tagline over and over and over, rejoice, rejoice. Rejoice, And if you don't pay attention to what Paul's saying, you may be tempted to walk away and say, eh, that's kind of like the biblical version of don't worry, be happy. You know, you got all these things in your life, life's difficult, eh, just rejoice anyways. And I want you to understand that when Paul calls the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always, he's not saying anything like what Bobby McFerrin was saying. He's not saying anything like what Meher Baba was saying. What McFerrin is saying is, sometimes life stinks, and you just need to be happy anyways and don't worry about it. That's helpful advice if your life is going well. But when your life stinks, and you're homeless, and you're lonely, and you're hungry, and it's not very helpful, is it? Somebody just to smile at you and say, don't worry, just be happy about it. And Meher Baba is an Eastern mystic. When he's talking about this idea of don't worry, be happy, what he's saying is all of your suffering is really an illusion. You only think you're suffering. You're not really suffering. Now, again, that's great advice when you're living high on the hog. But when you're the sufferer, for someone to look you in the face and to say, all these things that are so miserable in your life right now, they're not real. You just need to get over it. Don't worry. Be happy. Paul's not going down either of those roads. Paul understands suffering, right? As he's writing this letter to the Philippians, he is under house arrest in Rome. He's a prisoner. He understands suffering quite well. And he's not playing any of these sort of Eastern mystical games about your suffering is an illusion. You just need to deal with it. You need to get over it. You need to sort of be enlightened and move beyond these things. What he's saying to his friends in Philippi is, regardless of your circumstance, regardless of your situation, you must be people who worship and who do it with joy. Not denying their suffering or his suffering. But he's saying, this is the action that you've got to take, worship. This is the attitude that you've got to do it with, joy. And his assumption is that if the Philippians will do that, it won't make life easy or better or take away all their problems, but it will change them. And so let's look at the passage. Let's ask a few questions and try to make sense of what Paul's saying. The first question I want to ask is this. Did he really expect them to rejoice Always, And I know he says it right here, rejoice in the Lord always. But this is one of those passages that when I read it in the Bible, I just want to step back and say, does always mean always here? 
Like, does that, is that really what you're trying to say to me? That always, regardless of my situation in life, that I need to rejoice in the Lord? And the short answer is, did he really expect him to do it always? Yes. Always. Always means always. And I'm just going to put a few passages up on the screen. You can look them up, go back and dig through them later. I just want you to see that when he said always, he meant always. This is Romans chapter 5. Paul said, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice, there's that word, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He goes on to say this, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Go back to that first slide. We like this one. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now that's something to rejoice in. God's glory is going to be given to us through Jesus Christ. I can rejoice in that. Next verse. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? We know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So what does always mean? Well, it at least means that you rejoice in your sufferings. A few more verses. 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul says, we are sorrowful, yet we're always rejoicing. So we're growing our list. When do we rejoice? Always. That means when you suffer, you rejoice. That means when you're sorrowful, you rejoice. Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. You read that sort of out of context and you say, what in the world? What would be lacking in Christ's afflictions? Like he, he didn't do enough? He didn't suffer enough? What's lacking is that the Colossians hadn't heard about it. And Paul understands that through Paul's suffering, through his suffering, the Colossians are knowing now about the good news of the suffering of Jesus Christ. And he says, if I'm going to suffer and it's going to lead to you hearing the good news, I'm going to rejoice in that. He says it right here in Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. He says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. Always in this passage means always. And it doesn't mean that you just try to grin and bear it. Okay? It doesn't mean that God doesn't care about or acknowledge or understand the suffering that you're dealing with. It doesn't mean that you just try to think positive thoughts and be happy. It doesn't even mean that there's no place in your life for lament for crying out to God and just being honest with him about what you're feeling and what you're dealing with. All of those things are acceptable. But what Paul tells the Philippians is, rejoice always. I will say it again, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. In the Lord. In who he is and in what he's done for you through Jesus Christ. And your circumstances and your situation may be lousy. They may be fantastic really doesn't have any impact on your rejoicing because your rejoicing is who God is 
and what he's done for you through Christ. And those two things never change, regardless of your circumstance, regardless of your situation, regardless of the diagnosis that you get from the doctor, regardless of the size of your bank account, how big it is or small it is, regardless of the stresses you face, none of those things change who God is and what he's done for you through Christ. And so he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And what he means is do it always. Always. Next question is this. What do you expect from someone who is always rejoicing? If it's going to change their life, what do you expect in their life? And I just want to share a few thoughts with you from the passage. Number one, you should expect their life to be marked by grace. And then after you write the word grace, I should have put this up on the screen. I want you to put a little asterisk before or after or above the word grace. Just mark it with something that says grace. And there's a bigger idea than what you may think when you read the word grace. Look in your Bible at verse 5. Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. My guess is this morning as I look around the room, there's at least seven or eight, maybe nine different Bible translations that you're holding in your hand. I'm reading out of the ESV and the word in verse 5 is reasonableness. But some of you are looking at different Bible translations and some of you are reading the word gentleness. Some of you are reading the word considerate or forbearing or moderation or graciousness or fair-mindedness. If you lived a couple hundred years ago in 1525 and you read William Tyndale's version, English translation of the Bible, he would have used the word softness, which I don't really like, but he thought that conveyed the idea. Let your softness be known to everyone. And you look at all those different words that get thrown into our English translations and you realize Translators are having a hard time coming up with the right word here. For whatever Paul's trying to communicate in this Greek word in verse 5 where he says, let your reasonableness or your graciousness or your fair-mindedness, let it be known to everyone, there's just, it's sort of a, a strange idea for us. And I want to explain to you just with a quick example of how this works when you're trying to translate Bible verses. I'm going to put a picture up on the screen, okay? Take a look at that. You're going to have a test in about five seconds. Okay, take a good look at it. Feel like you know what's going on there? Okay, on the count of three, I want you to tell me what is the stuff setting on the ground? One word answer. What is the stuff setting on the ground? One, two, three. Snow. Okay, good. You're one for one. Halfway there. You all got a 50. Now, to put you over the top. You ready? You got to really think here. Okay, on the count of three, don't, don't tell your neighbor the answer. I want you to tell me when I count to three, what is the stuff falling out of the sky? One, two, three. Snow. Snow and snow. That's the easiest test I've ever taken. We have one word for the stuff that sits on the ground and the stuff that falls out of the sky. But did you know that if you were part of certain Inuit tribes up north in our continent, you don't just call both of those things snow. You have completely different words for what they are. One word for what's sitting on the ground and one word for what's up in the sky. That kind of makes sense because they see a lot of that stuff, right? We don't see it too much down here. So it's, it's snow. Coming down, it's snow. On the ground, it's snow. Here's the two words they use. When it's coming down out of the sky, they call it kanik. And when it's sitting down on the ground, they call it aputi. Two different things in their mind. Two completely different things. So if you were trying to translate those two words into English, kanik, 
You can't just call it snow because it's more than that. It's snow that's falling from the sky. You have to add modifiers to that to explain it because we don't have an English word for snow falling from the sky. We just say snow falling from the sky. Or if you want to describe snow sitting on the ground, you can't just call it snow sitting on the ground. That's what you have to say in English because we don't have this word for a puti. Okay? Here's what I'm telling you. When you go to Philippians 4, 5, there's a Greek word, and the word is epiakeia. Epiakeia. And when you just look it up in the dictionary and you say, well, what does it mean? What's the English translation? There really isn't one. It's a word that we don't have an exact translation for. And so we just come up with all these different words, and we start throwing all these different words to try to explain it. Here's the idea, okay? Epiakeia. It's justice when strict justice would be unjust. How do you give justice to somebody when strict justice would be unjust? Or to put it differently, this is being fair to someone when following the exact letter of the law would not be fair. And I'll give you an example from my life of maybe what this looks like. At seminary, one of the classes you have to take is preaching class. It's by far the worst class you have to take because all your peers get to judge you and critique you and write nasty things about your preaching. And so you sit there and you preach and they evaluate you and it's miserable. And you have to watch yourself on tape and professor in front of everybody grades you and tells you all the things you did wrong. So you're sitting in preaching class, right? Most of the guys in the preaching class are native English speakers, but at the seminary I went to, we got a decent number of international students. And so in this preaching class, you got guys from all over the world, guys who didn't grow up speaking English. I remember one guy in my preaching class was from Thailand. Brilliant guy. Super, super smart. But his English was not that great. He understood if you were speaking, he could listen, he could track with you. But his speaking was just not the best. But you're going to seminary in the United States. And we're taking a preaching class in English, which means you got to preach in English. So here's this guy from Thailand with a bunch of English speakers, and he stands up and he's got to preach in English. It's not his native language. He's not originally from our culture. And so he works hard to prepare his sermon, and he studies the texts, and he outlines it, and he gets it all ready. And he stands up and he starts to preach. And I'll just be honest with you, following the strict letter of the law, like the professor's evaluation form, it was a terrible sermon. You couldn't understand him. You couldn't follow him. You didn't exactly understand where he was driving at with his points. His enunciation wasn't good. He wasn't clear in the way that he communicated. It just wasn't very good. But the professor understood the situation. Of course, you've got to preach in English, so I know if you're spewing the truth or spewing some sort of crazy heresy... But what he would do with these international students was, I think, the idea that Paul's driving at with Epiakeia. He would say, look, preach the first half of the sermon in English, and I'm going to grade your content. And then I want you to preach the second half of your sermon in your native language, and I'm going to grade you on your delivery. Was that exactly fair to all the rest of the guys who didn't get a, a double standard grade? Well, maybe not really. But that was fair when strict fairness wouldn't have been fair. That was justice for somebody when following the exact letter of the law might have been unjust. To grade somebody on their ability to communicate God's word, not just on their ability to do it in a specific language. And that's what Paul's driving at here. 
when he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Look, it's the same thing Jesus talked about in Matthew 18. Go back and look at it this afternoon. There's a parable in Matthew 18 called the parable of the unforgiving servant. It's one of the greatest stories Jesus ever told. And the point is super easy. You have been forgiven so much by God, you in turn must be a forgiving person. God's grace has radically changed your life. That's got to somehow spill over into how you forgive other people and how you treat other people. And you say, what does this have to do with Philippians? Well, look at Philippians chapter 4. Jump back up to verse 2. We talked about two ladies recently named Euodia and Syntyche. And they're fighting. And everyone knows about it. And I'd be willing to bet that if you went back and you asked Euodia, Euodia, who's at fault here? Euodia could say, this is what Syntyche did to me. And I bet if you went to Syntyche and you said, Syntyche, what's the problem here? She would say, well, let me just tell you about Euodia. And they both could have looked at each other and they both could have said, this is what you did to make me upset, to hurt my feelings, to rub me the wrong way. They both felt like they had a grievance. They both felt like they'd been wronged. And Paul just kind of says, look, ladies, you've got to agree in the Lord. And then he comes around and he says, you've got to be reasonable. You've got to be fair-minded. You've got to be gracious. You can keep pointing fingers at each other and fighting and bickering over something that really may be wrong. Maybe Yodia or maybe Syntyche really wronged the other. But you've been forgiven so much. You need to be gracious toward the other person. And you've got to get over it. And you've got to agree in the Lord. So what do we expect from somebody who is rejoicing always? Not somebody who's holding a grudge. Not somebody who's bitter and unforgiving. Not somebody who just has all these interpersonal conflicts. But somebody who has experienced God's grace in their life. There's that word you filled in the blank with the asterisk. They've experienced God's grace in their life. And they're ready and quick to extend that same grace to those who have wronged them. Why? Because God was gracious to them. And they know that that grace has now got to be a mark of my life in my relationship with others. So what do you expect? You expect their life to be marked by grace. You also expect their life to be marked by peace, not anxiety. Peace, not anxiety. We'll come back to verse 5, the last little phrase there where it says, the Lord is at hand. We'll come back to that. It says, the Lord is at hand. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. I thought this week, what, what would you be anxious about if you lived in Philippi 2,000 years ago? What would you be tempted to be worried about or fearful about or anxious about? Maybe you would be fearful or anxious about your next meal, depending on your status in society. They didn't have HEBs back then. They didn't have food stamps back then. They didn't have welfare programs for people. It was sort of a dicey thing at times. Where's your next meal going to come from? You see that when you travel around the world to certain places even today. People don't have big stocked pantries where they know they're going to have something to eat for lunch or something to eat for dinner, it's just sort of one meal at a time. And so maybe they were anxious about that. Maybe they were anxious about their health. 
Maybe someone in your family would be sick and you didn't have the luxury of just taking an antibiotic or getting an immunization or taking an over-the-counter prescription that would fix you quickly and easily. So maybe you're concerned about that. Maybe you would be fearful, this seems very foreign to us, but maybe you would be fearful of gods and goddesses. Many of these people in Philippi would have formerly worshipped different deities, gods and goddesses. And the idea for many of these pagan peoples was that the gods and the goddesses are always out to get you. They're always out to trip you up. They're always out to make your life miserable. And so you offer sacrifices just to try to keep them happy so they don't lose their temper with you. And so maybe there's still a temptation to be fearful that one of these gods or goddesses, these powers is going to get you, or maybe even your view of God has been warped and you think God is out to get you and you're anxious about that. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. And the motivation he gives is that last part of verse 5, the Lord is at hand. You need to remember the truth about God that he's at hand. He's present with you for good. You're one of his people. The Lord is at hand. He's talking to these people who are struggling with anxiety, and he's saying, you've got to remind yourself about the truth of God. That may not seem very helpful to you, but I think that's exactly how you battle anxiety today. And I say that because that's exactly how Jesus told his disciples to battle anxiety in Matthew 6. Are you worried about what you're going to eat? Are you worried about what you're going to wear? Are you worried about all these things the Gentiles are worried about? Don't worry about those things. You have a heavenly Father. He cares about you. He's going to clothe you. And He's going to feed you. You don't have to be fearful like the Gentiles are. You sit in the room this morning and you say, I don't think I'm really anxious about what I'm going to wear. I have clothes at home. Well, it's easy not to be anxious about your clothes when you have a closet full of them. You may say, well, I don't think I've ever been anxious about what I'm going to eat. I might be curious or excited about it, but I don't know that I've ever been anxious about it. Like fearful that I'm not going to eat. Well, it's easy not to be anxious about food when you have a wallet full of money or a pantry stocked at your house. It's pretty easy not to be anxious about it. You can't deny that we're anxious people. We're anxious people. Part of the reason we're so anxious today is that we know a lot. We know more than any people in the history of the world about the world. And what I mean is, if there's a terrorist attack on the other side of the world, you know about it instantly. If there's some big natural disaster on the other side of the world, you know about it. If something tragic happens 50 miles down the road, in ancient times it would take a long time for that news to spread, but you and I know about it instantly. We know about all of these bad things all the time, all day long, on the news, on Facebook, social media, the internet. We know all of these things and we're prone to be anxious about them. And we're prone to be anxious because we have a lot. You understand, I've never been anxious about the condition of my classic Ferrari. I don't have one. I've never been tempted to be anxious about that. But the things that you have, you tend to be more anxious about those things. And the more that you have, the more you have to be anxious about. So we know a lot, and we have a lot. And in our day and age, people have invented a thousand different ways to deal with anxiety. 
You can just go to any bookstore and go to the self-help section. You'll find plenty of answers, bukus of answers about what you ought to do. And I think what Jesus would say is, you just need to remember that you have a heavenly Father who cares about you and loves you. And you need to seek his kingdom and all the other stuff's going to be added. And I think Paul would say almost the exact same thing, but in his own phrasing or his own words, he would say, look, the Lord's at hand. He's with you. He hasn't left you. He's not going to forsake you. He's with you. You don't have to be anxious about these things. In fact, you don't have to be anxious about anything. We're going to get to this idea of prayer in just a minute where he talks about praying and supplication and thanksgiving. But you know as well as I do that anxiety will kill your joy. Proverbs 12.25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. Anxiety takes all of this big world that you live in and it boils it down to about the size of your own life. And instead of putting God at the center of your life or putting others at the center of your life, you end up at the center of your life and that's a miserable place to be, the center of your own life. Paul's saying the Lord is at hand. He hasn't left you. He won't forsake you. He's with you. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Some of you hear that. Some of you are struggling with anxiety. And some of you say, man, that sounds a lot like health and wealth, some televangelist. Just telling me all you got to do is seek God and everything's going to be okay. That's not at all what I'm saying and that's not at all what Paul's saying. I think what Paul's saying is not, not... Whenever you have some crisis in your life and you're really spun up and you're worried, you go to God and you just pray to him and you talk to him and he's going to make it all better. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is you need to seek God continually. Seek the kingdom. Put the kingdom of God at the center. The Lord is at hand. Put him at the center of your life. Focus on him. Pray to him. Talk to him. Commune with him. Walk with him. Have fellowship with the Lord. And when the chaos comes into your life, Not if, but when it comes, God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. He's not going to keep you from all of those things, but he'll guard your heart and he'll guard your mind and he will give you this peace that passes all understanding. In the midst of the chaos and the storm and the turbulence, you will know his peace. Not because you came to him for some kind of bailout, but because you've been walking with him faithfully, communing with him, fellowshipping with him, praying to him. So what does it look like when somebody rejoices continually? That's what we're talking about, rejoicing always. Well, their life is marked by peace, not anxiety. The same troubles come into their life as yours, but they're different people because God is changing them and he's working in them. Last idea is this. What do you expect from somebody in this situation The last idea is you should expect their life to be marked by prayer. You see it in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And if you like to make notes in your Bible, there's three words you ought to circle. You ought to circle the word prayer, then you ought to circle the word supplication, and you ought to circle the word thanksgiving. Prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving ought to be a mark of a person who is always rejoicing in the Lord. 
Prayer is just generally this idea that we're talking with God. And I put a few verses on your outline. I just want you to understand that prayer is a distinctly Christian activity. It's a distinctly Christian activity. John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. We think about that in terms of like heaven. No one's getting to heaven except through Jesus. That's not exactly what he says. No one comes to the Father unless they come through the Son. No one talks to the Father unless they have access through the Son. You see the same idea in 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one mediator between God and men, and it's the man Jesus Christ. So I know and you know that every day there are billions of people on the earth who do something that they call prayer. Maybe they are responding to a prayer call and they get down on a rug and they face a certain direction. Maybe they get a little Hindu or Buddhist prayer wheel and they spin it around and they call that prayer. Maybe they're just about to take a star test or something tomorrow and they just say, I need help, I need help. Help me, Lord. But you understand and I understand from John 14 and from 1 Timothy that if it's not coming to the Father through the Son, you can call it whatever you want to do it, but there's nothing prayer about it. It's a distinctly Christian activity. It's a distinctly Christ-focused activity. And that's this big umbrella. He says you've got to be people of prayer if you're rejoicing always. And specifically, he mentions two. And of all the types of prayer he could mention, he mentions these two, supplication and thanksgiving. Praying for others and their needs, supplication, and giving thanks to God for what he's blessed you with, thanksgiving. Those two things are the types of prayer that make your world a little bit bigger than just you, that take your focus off of yourself and they put it onto God and onto other people. It's such a strange thing. He says, if you're anxious, here's what you ought to do. Pray for other people. If you're anxious and you're struggling with anxiety and you have these worries and these cares and these fears and all these burdens, you need to pray for other people more. You need to take your focus off of yourself and pray for others. I read one commentary this week and the the author asked this question. If God went back over the last week in your life and he answered everything that you asked, he answered every prayer that you uttered, whose life would change? Only yours? Or anyone else's. And so often in our prayers, we're so focused on ourselves. It's do this for me, do this for me, I need this, help me here, do this for me, come through for me here, I'm struggling here. And Paul says, look, if you're struggling with anxiety and you want to be somebody who rejoices always, you've got to be involved in supplication and praying for other people. And you've got to give thanks. You know, in the Bible, when people give thanks, they don't focus so much on the gift, but they focus more on the giver. There's one psalm in the whole book of Psalms where the note on top says, this is a psalm for giving thanks. And he doesn't actually thank God for anything. He just acknowledges God as God. Meaning when you and I give thanks, it's not so much about the stuff that God's blessed us with, but it's about the blesser or the giver of those good gifts. And that's Paul's prescription for somebody who's going to rejoice always and who's not going to fall into this trap of anxiety. You've got to be somebody who's focused on praying for others, not just yourself, but for others, 
and somebody who's focused on giving thanks for what God has given you. Anxiety is focused on all that you don't have. Thanksgiving is focused on what you do have and who God is who's blessed you with those things. It's a hard challenge when you read Paul say to the church in Philippi and say to us, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It is not something that comes easy for me or for you. It's easy to pay lip service to it when your life is great and you're healthy and your kids and your grandkids or your parents and your grandparents are all doing well. But when life stinks, it's hard. In fact, it's so hard that you can't do it on your own. And Paul understands that. And that's why way back in the beginning of this book, keep everything in context, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine. There's a prayer of thanksgiving. He practices what he preaches, thanking God for you because of your partnership in the gospel. And he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And when you and I read this challenge of rejoicing always, it's not at all, okay, i got to try a little bit harder. But it's i got to seek God a little bit more. And i got to trust that he's going to work out what he's started to work into my life. And so this morning we're going to pray to that end. I'd like you to bow. And we're going to ask God to continue to work in us and to make us the kind of people who rejoice always. Father, we love you. We're grateful for who you are. We're grateful for what you have done for us through Christ. Father, this morning we pray that you would make us the kind of people that you command us to be. We read in Philippians over and over, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Be people who are always rejoicing. Father, we cannot do that on our own power. We need your strength and so we ask for it this morning. We ask you to make us the kind of people that you call us to be. We ask you to bring to completion what you've started in our life. Father, as we work out our salvation, we know that it's you who is at work within us to will and to work for your good pleasure. And so, Father, just a simple request this morning. We ask that you would make us people who rejoice always. Father, as we sing this morning, we want to do that. We want to worship, and we want to worship with joy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.